Grace and peace to you, friends. Welcome to The Oak Tree Journeys. My name is Mandy Oaks, and this is the Encyclopedia Challenge Season 1, Episode 71. Thank you so much for joining me this week. I'm so excited. I wasn't sure if I was going to actually be able to post anything or record anything because I was having horrible technical difficulties the other day. And I was just like, ah, I don't know what I'm going to do for my podcast uh, if this continues. So hopefully the uh, technical difficulties are gone, um, at least for now, knock on wood. Um, and uh, we can move on and, and, <laughs> and hopefully this will be posted in time. Uh, but this, just thank you so much for joining me. If you are new here... Uh, you may be wondering, what is an encyclopedia challenge? Do I have to read an encyclopedia? I don't own encyclopedias. I just use Google for everything. Well, those are great questions, and it's fine to use Google for everything. I use Google a lot uh, whenever I need to search for something. Um, the encyclopedia challenge is where I read the encyclopedia to you. We read from two different encyclopedias. The main source is the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909. And then the secondary source, um, which we are going to be in just two times uh, this week, or today, is the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. And if you are new here, um, or if you are a regular listener, and you just want to catch up on some of the podcasts, or maybe you missed some of the podcasts, I just go to my website, theoaktreejourneys.com, and select Podcasts or Encyclopedia Challenge. And you can scroll through and uh, you can see a list of words. If you, look, if you look at Encyclopedia Challenge, there is a list of words uh, that we've gone over so far. If you want today's list of words, it is Season 1, Episode 71. And if you are listening to it on June 26th or any time this week uh, before I put pop in the new one for July, it will be at the very bottom. Now, if you're listening to this later, it won't be at the very bottom, uh, so you'll have to do a search for it. But a lot of these words, uh, if you are my regular listener, then you know this, but a lot of these words are not pronounced the way they are spelled. So if you are curious as to how they are spelled versus how they are pronounced, I would encourage you to go to my website, theoaktreejourneys.com, and select Encyclopedia Challenge. And if you select podcasts, that's uh, all of the uh, major podcast platforms that this should be posted on. I haven't checked all of them lately. Um, but Anchor assures me that they're supposed to be posted on all of those. So if they're not, uh, just let me know. Uh, there's a contact uh, page on my website. Or you can email me directly. My email address is mandyoaks at protonmail.com. Uh, so if something's not working correctly, just let me know and I will let Anchor know because that is what I use. I use Anchor and Anchor is free. Uh, in fact, I do have a little blurb about Anchor in the middle of our podcast, but I do want to just say that I received an email um, today, actually. I was trying to think about when it was, about someone being charged $1,200 to do podcasting. No, 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 no. Don't pay to do podcasting. Do Anchor. Uh, and you'll you'll hear more of my, um, about Anchor in my little blurb, um, a little commercial break uh, in the middle of this podcast. But definitely do not pay. If, if 
if the podcast platform is asking you to pay, go far away from it. Far, far, far away. Uh, because Anchor does not charge um, anything to, to post. So that's my little, my little beginning blurb about Anchor. About the actual commercial break, where I actually get paid if you listen to it. Um, is in the middle of this podcast. So there we go. And welcome, June 26, 2022. Last week was Father's Day. So if you missed that uh, podcast, I do have a few little Father's Day things in there. I didn't do a bonus Father's Day. I didn't do a bonus Mother's Day either. Um, so if you missed Father's Day or Mother's Day, just uh, check on those. That was last week's. Uh, that would well Father's Day was last week, so that would have been episode seventy, season one, episode seventy. So if you want to catch up on that, feel free. Um, next week is Independence Day. I'm not going to do a bonus for Independence Day uh, because I did one last year. So if you want to listen to a bonus uh, for Independence Day, definitely check out um, the bonuses. Go to my website again. That is theoaktreejourneys.com. And select bonuses. Now there is a link in the description that takes you directly to the bonuses. So I would encourage you if you are wanting a little extra Independence Day uh, bonus podcast. I would encourage you to check that out. Because um, I did one last year. and I think it's really good. I believe I had some kids in there. If I remember correctly. I know I had some kids in a couple of them. Uh, that do the Pledge of Allegiance. So if you missed the Pledge of Allegiance, definitely check that out. All right, so let's go ahead and begin our podcast. So as you know, my regular listeners, we have started doing a quote of the month. And so today is the last day that you will hear the quote from Dr. Thomas Fuller. He was an English reverend divine. And I love this quote. Love it, love it, love it. The real difference between men is energy, a strong will, a settled purpose, an invincible determination can accomplish almost anything. And in this lies the distinction between great men and little men. I just love that quote. And we'll say it again one more time uh, before this week ends. Let's go ahead and get started with the Encyclopedia Challenge, our first set of five entries are all from the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909. And it's Emritsar, Emru, and Nicholas, Amsler, Samuel, and Amsterdam. Okay, so number one, and Emritsar, uh, actually, I keep wanting to say Emritsar, but it's Emritsar, and it's a city of the Punjab in India. 32 miles east of Lahore by rail, capital of a district, also of a division. It is the religious metro, metro and on an islet in its pool of immortality stands the chief temple of the Sikh faith. It is a favorite resort of pilgrims. Next to Delhi, it is the richest and most prosperous city in North India. It is on account of its favorable situation between Kabul and Delhi. Kashmir and the Deccan, or Deccan, a place of great trade and has considerable manufactures of shawls and silks. But its chief attraction to the natives is the sacred pond constructed by Ram Das, one of the earlier pontiffs of the Sikh faith. 
in which the Sikhs immerse themselves that they may be purified from all sin. This holy basin is 150 paces square, built of brick, having in its center the chief temple of the Sikh religion. The population in 1901 was 162,429. The district of Amritsar has 1,574 square miles, population over 900,000. The division of Amritsar has 5,354 square miles, the population 2,729,109. So there we go. And entry number two, Amru, originally an opponent and subsequently a zealous supporter of Muhammad and one of the ablest of the Mohinian warriors, he brought Egypt under the power of the Caliph Omar in 638 and governed it wisely till his death in 663. The burning of the famous Alexandrian library has been generally attributed to him, though only on the authority of a writer who lived six centuries later. Number three, Amsdorf, Nicholas, or Nicholas Amsdorf. He was a Protestant reformer of the 16th century, born in Gross, Schoppe, near Wurzhern in Mold in 1483, December 3rd. He died in 1565, May 14th. He was educated at Leipzig and then at Wittenberg, where he was one of the first who matriculated in 1502 in the recently founded university. He obtained various academical honors and became professor of theology in 1511. He joined Luther at the very beginning of his struggle in 1517, continued all along one of his most determined supporters, was with him at the Lipstick Conference and the Diet of Worms, and was in the secret of his Wartburg seclusion. He assisted the first efforts of the Reformation at Magdeburg, at Gosler, and at Einbeck, took an active part in the debates at Schmalkald, where he defended the use of the sacrament by the unbelieving and spoke out strongly against the bigamy of the Electoral of Hesse. He urged the separation of the High Lutheran Party from Melanchthon, got the Saxon dukes to oppose the Frankfurt Recess in 1558, and continued to fight for the purity of Lutheran doctrine until his death. But he was busy. <laughs> Number four, Amsler, Samuel, or Samuel Amsler. He lived from 1791, December 17th, to... 1849, May 18th, he was born in Schinschnack, Switzerland, engraver on copper and professor in the Academy of Arts in Munich. Among his great works showing the highest qualities of imitative art are his engravings of Alexander's Triumphal Procession by Thorwaldsen, Burial of Christ by Raphael, and engraving a statue of Christ by Deniker. His style is marked by noble treatment of form, rather than by strong contrast of tones. In faithful representation of Raphael's works, he is scarcely equaled. And number five is Amsterdam, which is a city in Montgomery County, New York, on the north side of the Mohawk River, on the Erie Canal, and the West Shore Railroad, 33 miles northwest of Albany. It was first settled about 1778, and until 1804 was known as Wietersburg. It was incorporated as a village in 1830 and as a city in 1885. 
Among, among it, important manufacturing establishments are foundries and machine shops and factories for wagon springs, paper, paper boxes, brooms, silk, rugs, carpets, knit goods, etc. It contains an academy, a hospital, a Roman Catholic institute, numerous churches, and several banks. There are well-paved streets, an electric lighting system, excellent water supply, and drainage system. Population in 1905 was 23,943. So if you remember, in the early 1900s, electricity and a water supply and drainage systems were very, very important because not everyone had them. And I can't remember when this part of Tennessee that I live in got electricity, electric lights. Um, not everyone in the Appalachian area has has electricity, as at least not in 2010, 2011, um, and, and probably still now, um, or even um, a water system. Um, so sometimes we take those for granted. Um, but anyway, let's go ahead and go to break. And welcome back. Our next set of five entries, or entries numbers six through ten, are Amsterdam or Amsteldam, and then Amsterdam again, Amu or Amudaria or Jehon, Amuk, and Amulet. And all of this is from the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909. So number six is Amsterdam or Amsteldam. And for the spelling of that, go to theoaktreejourneys.com, select Encyclopedia Challenge. This is Season 1, Episode 71, and this is number six. Okay, so Amsterdam or Amsteldam, chief city of the Netherlands at the confluence of the Amstel with the Ige, or I, rather, an arm of the Zuider Zee. It is divided by the Amstel and numerous canals into small islands connected by about 300 bridges. Almost the whole city, which extends in the shape of a crescent, is founded on piles. At the beginning of the 13th century, it was merely a fishing village. With a small castle, the residence of the Lords of Amstel, in 1296, on account of the murder of Count Floris of Holland, the rising town was demolished, and its inhabitants were compelled to leave it. Afterwards, with Amstelland, the district on the banks of the Amstel, it was taken under the protection of the Counts of Holland, and under them enjoined several privileges which contributed to its subsequent prosperity. In 1482, it was walled and fortified. It soon rose to be the first commercial place in the United States of the Netherlands, in 1585, was considerably enlarged by the building of the new town on the west, and in 1622, had 100,000 inhabitants. This prosperity excited the envy of its neighbors. In the 17th century, the war with England so far reduced the commerce of Amsterdam that in 1653, about 4,000 houses were uninhabited. Prosperity was restored during the next century, and though commerce was again injured by the disputes with England, from 1781 to 1782, it once more revived. The Union of Holland with France in 1840 entirely destroyed the foreign trade of Amsterdam, while the excise and other new regulations impoverished its inland resources. But the old firms lived through the time of difficulty, and in 1815 commerce again began to expand, 
that should give us a little bit of hope if you get my drift there. Because uh, history tends to repeat itself. The city has a fine appearance when seen from the harbor or from the high bridge of the Amstel. Numerous church towers and spires relieve the flatness of the prospect. The old ramparts have been leveled, planted with trees, and formed into new promenades. Between 1866 and 1876, many spacious streets and an extensive public park were added to the city. Tramways have been successfully introduced and the harbor greatly improved. There is railway communication with all parts of the country and of Europe. Rich grassy meadows surround the city. On the west side are a great number of windmills for grinding corn and sawing wood. The three principal canals in Amsterdam on each side of which, with a carriageway and row of trees intervening, the gentlemen's residences are built, run in semicircles within each other, and are from two to three miles long, called the Kerengracht, Kaisergracht, and Prinzegracht. The houses are built of brick and have their gables towards the streets, which gives them a picturesque appearance. In old times, Amsterdam was strongly fortified. Now its only defense consists of the sluices, several miles distant from the city, which can flood in a few hours the surrounding land. A hard frost, however, like that of 1794 to 1795, when grew invaded the country, would render this means of defense useless. The chief industrial establishments are sugar refineries, engineering works, mills for polishing diamonds and other precious stones, dockyards, manufactories of sails, ropes, tobacco, silks, gold and silver, plate, and jewelry, colors and chemical preparations, breweries, distilleries with export houses for corn and colonial produce, cotton spinning, book printing, and type founding are also carried on. The former Stadthaus, converted into a palace for King Louis Bonaparte, and still retained by the reigning family, is a noble structure raised upon 13,659 piles and is 290 feet in length by 239 feet in breadth, surmounted by a round tower rising 190 feet from the base. It has a hall 120 feet long, 57 feet wide, and 90 feet high, lined with white Italian marble, an apartment of great splendor, the New Quirk, or New Church, founded in 1408, is the finest ecclesiastical structure in the city. Its chancel is especially admired. It contains the tombs of Admiral de Ruyter, of the famous Dutch poet Vondel, and of various other notable persons. The Old Church, or Old Kirk, built in the 14th century, contains several monuments of naval heroes. Literature and science are represented by a university supported by the municipality, till recently known as the Athenium Illustra, by an academy of arts and sciences, an excellent museum of paintings, a library, harmonic societies, botanical and zoological garden. There are several theaters, the hospital for aged people, the poorhouse, house of correction, the orphan asylums, that just sounds awful, actually. Um, all of this sounds awful. Uh, a navigation school and many benevolent societies are well-supported and well-managed. Large ships reach the city by the North Holland Canal, 52 miles in length, from Nudiep, but if drawing more than 15 and a half feet of water, were formally compelled to discharge a large part of the cargo. To avoid this delay and expense, the eye has been separated from the Zuter Zee by Sea Dyke, with sluices for admitting the small inland ships and pumping machinery capable of discharging 
2,500 cubic meters of water per minute. Two piers have been built into the North Sea near Wick and Z to form a harbor. The peninsula has been cut by a canal which is continued through the eye and capable of admitting vessels drawing 22 feet direct to Amsterdam, reducing also the distance from 52 to 15 miles, the length of the new canal. In carrying out these works, about 12,000 acres of excellent land have been reclaimed from the eye, and in 1876, a large tract was already bearing fine crops. The population in 1901 was 530,718, the majority of whom belonged to the Dutch Reformed Church. Of the remainder, the most numerous are the Roman Catholics, Lutherans, Jews, and Baptists. And number seven, Amsterdam again. So Amsterdam, Amsterdam, a barren islet, latitude 37 degrees, 52 feet south, and longitude 77 degrees, 37 feet east, the home of seabirds, shellfish, and seals. It is worthy, however, of notice for its structure and its situation. Manifestly of volcanic origin, it still possesses a burning soil ooh, and hot springs, and with its single neighbor, St. Paul, 60 miles to the northeast, it is about midway to the direct line between the Cape of Good Hope and Van Diemen's Land, being also at nearly the same distance from Cape Comorin. And number eight, Amu, or Amudaria, or Jihon, it is a sea oxus, or oxus. So we won't know what that is until we get to the O's. And number nine, Amuk. A muck. I love that word. A muck, a muck, a muck, a muck. And is that from, I want to say that's from um, Hocus Pocus. A muck, a muck, a muck, or is that something else? She may say something else. I don't remember the silly one. Um, who just, just all blonde and silly. I, I don't remember exactly what she says, but it saying a muck just reminds me <laughs> of her. So a muck. Wildly, madly killing people without discrimination after the manner of a Malay as to run amok. Ooh, I didn't realize that's what it meant. I just thought it meant running around wildly. I didn't realize it meant running around wildly killing people indiscriminately. That's just, wow. Well, it also means wildly and madly. So there we go. So it, it does mean wildly and madly. It also means killing people without discrimination after the manner of a Malay as to run amok. Okay. So we got to get the whole definition there. All right. Number 10, amulet. So amulet, noun, a preservative against sickness, poison, etc. Something worn generally around the neck in the belief that it will ward off disease. Witchcraft or evil. Amuletic pertaining to an amulet is often a stone or piece of metal with an inscription or some figures engraved on it. Its origin, like its name, seems oriental. The ancient Egyptians had their amulets sometimes forming necklaces. Among the Greeks, such a protective charm was styled phylectorion. Among the Romans, amuletum. The phylacteries of the Jews... See Matthew 23, 5, slips of parchment on which passages of the law were written, were evidently worn as badges of piety by the Pharisees, but were also regarded as wholesome preservatives from evil spirits and from all manner of harm. 
From the heathen, the use of amulets passed into the Christian church, the inscription on them being Ichthys, the Greek word for a fish, because it contained the initials of the Greek words for Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior. See abbreviations. Among the Gnostic sects, Abraxas stones were much used. Amulets soon became so common among Christians that in the 4th century, the clergy were interdicted from making and selling them on pain of deprivation of holy orders. Ooh. And in 721, the wearing of amulets was solemnly condemned by the church. Among the Turks and many other nations of Central Asia, every person considers it necessary to wear a preservative charm. With the spread of Arabian astronomy, the astrolog astrological amulet or talisman of the Arabs found its way to Europe. Kopp, a German author, has written a work, Polygraphica or Attica, or, or on amulets and their inscriptions. Among amulets, to St. Helena, the mother of Constantine, these and other coins marked with a cross were thought specially efficacious against epilepsy and are generally found perforated for the purpose of being worn suspended from the neck. The belief in the virtue of amulets is not extinct among the vulgar. I actually like amulets. I don't know, what do you think? Do you like amulets after hearing this? Do you still like amulets if you'd liked them before? Or did you not like them and like them now after hearing this? Let me know. Um, you can email me at mandyoaks at protonmail.com or go to my website, theoaktreejourneys.com and select contact and just let me know what you think about amulets. I'm just, I'm curious. Uh, I don't, I don't mind an amulet. Um, I mostly, I didn't realize that an amulet was worn to ward things off um, or to prevent sickness. Um, but I think it's, it is very interesting. Uh, so just let me know and let's go ahead and go to break. And welcome back. Before we get into the next set of five entries, um, I keep forgetting to uh, mention this and I need to because Love Gone Viral, um, which is a book of five uh, closed door romances is only available until the end of this month. So if you are interested in five closed door romances, um, and one by Prue Warren, who is just absolutely hilarious. If you've never read anything by Prue Warren, you are missing out. If you like romance and, and you like uh, comedic romance, fantastic, hilarious. But her um, book or her novelette, and Love Gone Viral is really funny, and it's 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 clean uh, in Love Gone Viral. So that is available until the end of this month. So you have until June 30th uh, to buy it, and all of the proceeds go uh, to uh, Feed America and, oh, I can't remember the other one. But if you go to my website, theoaktreejourneys.com, and go to books, and then scroll down to Love Gone Viral, and click on that link. It'll take you to the Amazon link for it. And it'll explain, um, I think it's Harvest Food Bank. I want to say Harvest Food Bank. So if you go there, it'll explain where it goes to. So I don't get any of the proceeds. None of the authors, other authors get any of the proceeds. So definitely check that out uh, if you're interested uh, in helping out um, with, with those two, uh, Feeding America and, and Harvest Food Bank. So anyway, just wanted to mention that um, we finally set a date of when it's going to to drop from the cells 
and it is June 30th is when it's supposed to be removed from Amazon. So you have until June 30th to buy the book, and um, if you miss out, you know, I might have a couple of extra ones, maybe, maybe, maybe for later, uh, for, a, for a contest, perhaps, after June 30th. Um, but that's, yeah, <laughs> that, that's to be determined, so TBD on that. Um, but again, Love Gone Viral, go to my website, theoaktreejourneys.com, scroll all the way down uh, for, under the books, and you'll see Love Gone Viral. Just click on um, the picture of Love Gone Viral and see if it's something you're interested in. There might be at least one story that you like, and you can help um, a good cause while you're getting it. Alright, so our next set of five entries, so 11 through 15, are... Amarcus, Amarnath, Emisat, Jean Zulima, Amuse, Amy, Ernest Valentine. Okay, so number 11 is Ermacus. So I have to be really careful because it's not spelled the way I would pronounce it personally. So Amarcus, Amarcus, <laughs> uh, it just means full of lees or scum. So that's it. Full of Lees. L-E-E-S. So L is in Larry, E is in Edward, E is in Edward, S is in Sam. That that type of Lees. Not leaves, but full of Lees or scum. And that's pretty much it. So a huge word with a small definition. Number 12. Amarnath. Which is, this is kind of interesting. A cave amid the mountains which bound Kashmir on the northeast. It is a natural cave in a rock of gypsum about 100 yards wide, 30 high, and 500 deep. It is believed by the Hindus to be the residence of the god Siva and is therefore visited by multitudes of pilgrims. So that's pretty interesting. Number 13, we switch over to the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956 for number 13. And it is a Musa. I think I said a Musat or a Musut. Musit, however I said it, but it's Amusa, comma Jean Zalima, or Jean Zalima Amusa, and to get the pronoun, uh, the spelling of that. Go to theoaktreejourneys.com, select Encyclopedia Challenge, and uh, go to Season One, Episode Seventy One. Um, but he was a French surgeon. He was born in Saint Maxent, France. November 21st, 1796. He died in Paris, May 13th, 1856. He entered the army in early life and was later assistant surgeon at the Salpeterre Hospital and a member of the Paris Faculty of Medicine. Amusa invented many surgical appliances and first adopted the method of torsion of the arteries and hemorrhage. He pioneered also the operation for opening the large intestine lumbar colostomy, at a point where it is not covered with the peritoneum. In addition, he devised a lithotrite for urinary calculi, or calculi. And I thought we were done with surgery from last week, but apparently not. Uh, if you recall, my regular listeners, if you recall, sur surgery, I believe, was last week, or no, it was um, amputation. Oh, that was it. Amputation was last week. I'm like, surgery, wait a minute. 
those are, that's S. We're not in the S's yet. We're still in the A's. Duh. I don't know where I am. I'm apparently somewhere out in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> All right. Number 14 is Amuse. Um, Amuse. And if I amuse you, then that's fantastic. But Amuse is number 14. And for that one, we go back to the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909. It's a verb. It means to entertain agreeably. To fill the mind with thoughts that engage without distracting it. Amusing, amused, amusement, noun, that which diverts, that which entertains pleasantly. Amusingly or amusively, in an amusing manner, synonym of amuse, to entertain, divert, beguile, occupy, deceive. Oh, there we go. That's a weird one. Please gratify. Of amusement, so synonym of amusement is diversion, entertainment, sport, recreation, pastime. And for number 15, um, we go back to the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. And this will be the last entry in the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. But it's Amy, Ernest Valentine. And I, anytime I see the word Amy, I think woman. But this, in this case, it's a last name. So Ernest Valentine, Amy. American engineer and inventor. You know, I love the inventors. Inventors are fascinating. Uh, just very fascinating. Writers are too. <laughs> yeah, I have to say writers are too because I'm a writer too. But no, inventors are just super fascinating. Um, but he was an American engineer and inventor. He was born in New York, New York, February 11th, 1892. So he was still alive. There's no date of death. So it looks like he was still alive. Um... Whenever this was written in 1956, which is good. <laughs> um, so after receiving his degree at Columbia University and serving in, in the United States Army in World War I, he became connected with several leading American telegraph and radio companies. In 1928, he established himself as a consulting engineer besides heading his own research laboratories. He has, to his credit, many important radio devices, particularly in the field of sound absorption and noise reduction. So, think headphones. I don't know if he invented headphones, but, you know, think headphones. That's noise reduction and sound absorption. So, there we go. All right, and with that, um, let's go ahead and go to break. Welcome back. I have to apologize. It's the World Central Kitchen in Feeding America. If I just gone to my website and looked at the picture, um, it says five romantic and eclectic tales of love during the coronavirus. All proceeds will go to the world, go to World Central Kitchen and Feeding America. So my, my apologies on that. My memory was, was very, very much off on that. But it's love gone viral. Um, and uh, there are five tales, and they are all different, all different. Um, okay, so let's go ahead and go to the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909 for the remainder of this podcast. And I meant to practice this, so let me, let me try to get this right, because it is not spelled the way I would pronounce it, which is not unusual, as we've mentioned. And you'll hear me say it over and over again. It's ah Mike Lee, ah Mike Lee, and then a Mike Lee again, and then we have 
amygdala, or I'm sorry, amygdala, or group A, C, E. <laughs> and then we have, we're getting into the really hard words for this section, amygdalin and amygdaloid. So big words and difficult to pronounce words. All right, so number 16 is Amikli, which is an old Laconian town on the east bank of the Eurotas, 20 stadia southeast of Sparta, in a richly wooded and fertile region. It was a famous city in the heroic age, the abode of Tyndarus and his spouse Leda, who bore to Jupiter the twins Castor and Pollux, and Helena, long after the Dorians had sub subjugated and peopled the rest of the Peloponnesus, it continued to be a free Achaean town. It was conquered by the Spartans only before the First Messanian War, and in consequence of a curious and absurd law. The inhabitants were so often agitated by false rumors of the approach of the Spartans, that growing tired of living in a state of continual alarm, they decreed that no one should henceforth mention or even take notice of these disagreeable fictions. Unfortunately, so it's like the little boy who cried wolf. You know, you cry wolf so often that eventually it does come to pass. Because it says, unfortunately, the Spartans did come at length. And according to the Greek saying, quote, Amikli perished through silence, end quote. So, perished through silence. Hence the proverb, more silent than Mikely itself. And I, it's in another language, but that's the translation. I'm not even going to attempt the other language. After its conquest, it became a village noted only for its annual festival of Hyacinthia and its temple of Apollo with the colossal statue of the god himself. So, just a, that might be a good thing to remember more silent than Amikli itself. Because they died through silence. They perished through silence. Okay, so number 17 is Amikli again. An ancient city on the coast of Campania, Italy, said to have been built by, by a colony of the Greek Amikli. It had ceased to exist in the time of uh, Pilony. Okay, number 18. And that's all it has to say about it. Number 18 is amygdalae, or group A-C-E. According to some botanists, a natural order of diacdalidaneous plants, but more generally regarded as a suborder of rosacea. The species all are trees or shrubs. They have the tube of the calyx lined with a disc, the pistil a solitary simple carpel with a terminal style, the fruit of a droop, for other botanical characters, see rosacea, the bark yields gum and hydrocyanic acid is present in very notable quantity in different parts as the leaves, kernels, etc. It is chiefly, or they are chiefly natives of the cold and temperate regions of the northern hemisphere. Some of them yield valuable fruits and various products of the order are used in medicine. See almond, peach, nectarine, plum, cherry, and cherry laurel. This order or suborder contains about 110 known species. Wow, that's a lot. What if there's more now since we're in the 2000s and this was in the early 1900s? Hmm. I don't know. Anyway. 
let's go on to number 19, which is amygdalin. Amygdalin, it's a crystalline principle in the kernel of bitter almonds. The leaves of the Prunus lorocerasus and various other plants, which by distillation yield hydrocyanic acid. I believe we did talk about this when we talked about acid. Sounds familiar, at least. Need to go back and look. It is obtained by extraction with boiling alcohol from the paste or cake of bitter almonds, which remains after the fixed oil has been separated by pressure. The alcoholic solution usually contains more or less oil, which must be removed by decantation or filtration. It must then be evaporated and the amygdalin precipitated by ether, which it is insoluble. Amygdalin crystallizes in thin, transparent, needle-like prisms. It has a sweetish, somewhat bitter taste and is not poisonous, and when treated with alkaline solvents, ammonia is expelled, and amygdalic acid, which is C20, H26, and O12 is produced. It is of special interest to the chemist because it was the first known of the numerous class of substances termed glycosides. Like other glycosides, amygdalin does not form salts with acids, but is decomposed by them with the formation of glucose. Okay, and with that, let's go ahead and uh, go to break. welcome back i just realized i cheated you out of one uh entry so now we're going to do entries 20 through 25 instead of 21 through 25 i completely missed amygdaloid amygdaloid um so entry number 20 should have been amygdaloid and i it just hit me as i was getting ready to, to read amygdaloid number two so we have amygdaloid, amygdaloid, amyl, amylaceous, imaline hydrate, and imolopsine. And I don't know if I pronounced that correctly, but let's go ahead and go to entry number 20. And my deepest apologies for that. So number 20 is amygdaloid, noun, applied to certain ingenious rocks containing small almond-shaped cavities filled with agate, jasper, and other minerals, having the appearance of almonds in a cake. Amygdaloid, pertaining to amygdalate, made of almonds. Noun, milk of almonds. Amygdalic, pertaining to amygdaline. Noun, a crystalline substance obtained from almonds. Adjective, pertaining to, also amygdalinic adverb. Okay, and so number 21 is also amygdaloid. A rock consisting of a basis of some kind of trap rock, very frequently of greenstone, forming numerous roundish or oval cells, which are filled with nodules, often of calcareous spar or of zeliatic minerals. The cells are not large, but even those which are almost adjacent differ much in size. The nodules are evidently the result of a sublimation and imperfect crystallization under the action of the heat which form the cells. Empty cells often occur among those filled with minerals. The name agnomaloid is correctly extended to rocks of the same character, although the basis be not of a trap, but meta metamorphic. Okay, and before I continue uh, to entry number 22, um, I just wanted to 
uh, mention that next Sunday, which is July the 3rd, if you are in the area, so if you are in my area, uh, which is in the northeast state of Tennessee, um, kind of near Bluff City, there's a church called Mountain View Church of Christ in Bluff City um, near a Shell Station, a Shell Gas Station. So if you're in that area, the Bluff City area, Bluff City, Tennessee, there is a meal after church. So uh, Sunday school starts at 10 a.m. and services start at 11 a.m. and the meal is is a little after 12. So if you're in the area, feel free uh, to come to services and you don't have to bring anything. There's plenty of food. There's always, always food left over. Um, so feel free to come and enjoy the meal. And enjoy some really good fellowship, too. Uh, Mountain View a Church of Christ has some amazing people. Uh, so we would love to see you. And, uh, yeah, just, just drop on by if, uh, if you're in the area and, and have a meal with us. Okay, and so let's go ahead and move on to number 22, which is a meal. <laughs> so have a meal with us, but also entry number 22 is a meal. And that's a noun. And it's in chemistry, hypothetical radical of the amyl series. Amylene, noun, a hydrocarbon, which is C5H10 of the ethylene series. Amylic, of or from starch. Amylaceous, starchy. Amyloid, starch-like. Amyl, C5H11, is one of the series of alcohol radicals having the general formula of C... N H2N plus 1. Amyl cannot exist in the free state, but two of its molecules can combine to form the paraffin decane, which is C10H22, which is a liquid boiling at about 320, so 320 degrees Fahrenheit. The radical amyl can have no less than eight different isomeric forms, and it consequently enters into a large number of chemical compounds most of which are derived from amylai alcohol, C fusel oil. Amyl nitrate, which is C6H11NO2, is a clear yellowish fluid, highly volatile, with odor as of ripe bananas. As a remedy for asthma and angina pectoris, it is administered by inhalation. Now, remember, this is from the early 1900s. Please do not take any medical advice from the, from the early 1900s. I don't know what they use now for asthma, um, by inhalation, so please do not do not take this advice. It causes great vascular dilation and increases the heart's action. Its value is in its rapid action, giving relief till remedies of more permanent but tardier effect can act. It should be used only under medical advice. Okay, and number 23, amylaceous, a term in chemistry and botany equivalent to starchy, Amylaceous food is food consisting at least in great part of some kind of starch as an arrowroot. Arrowroot is really good. I like arrowroot. Sago, etc. A compound radical called amyl is formed by the decomposition of starch in a peculiar fermentation, the amylic fermentation, but to it the term amylaceous has no reference. Okay. Number 24, amylene hydrate. An alcohol used as a hypnotic, it is technically a tertiary isoamyl alcohol and is a limpid, colorless, neutral fluid with a peculiar odor and a burning taste. 
It is miscible with eight parts of water and freely miscible with alcohol, chloroform, and fixed oils. It has an action on the human body similar to that of other alcohols and is a useful hypnotic. Please do not take any of these uh, things. Occupying a position between chloral, which is twice as strong, and perylhyde, which has about half the strength of amyl hydrate. In large doses, it is a heart depressant. And number, let me make sure I've got this right, number 25. Number 25 is a milopsin. is a chemical or unorganized ferment occurring in the pancreatic fluid together with stepsin and trypsin. The chief function of amylopsin in intestinal digestion is to affect the conversion of starches and similar substances into sugars. The conversion takes place in the small intestine. Amylopsin is often called the pancreatic diastase. And with that, uh, we had entries number 20 through 25 because of my little error in the last, last section. Um, so let's go ahead and go to break. And welcome back. Before we get into the last set of five entries, I wanted to mention Camp NaNoWriMo. So if you are a writer or you want to dabble in writing, then Camp NaNoWriMo was for you. It's just in four days. Uh, so it begins July 1st. I am personally um, not planning on participating this year uh, as I have different goals um, and I don't have time to check in anymore but I really enjoyed it whenever I was doing it I did it for years and years and years I, I don't remember exactly when I started it um, but I I think it was like 2009 or 10 something like that uh, but it was it's been really fun but you go to nanorimo.org and the link is in the description below um, so nanorimo.org and you can participate, just sign up. The sign up is free. Uh, so again, that's Camp NanoRimo for July. Uh, you can set your own goals, um, unless they've changed the rules. <laughs> uh, if your goal is to just try to do five hours of writing, um, I know they used to let you do that. I don't know if they do anymore. Um, but you can definitely check it out if you're interested in writing or you are a writer. And you just need a little bit of extra oomph uh, to help you with your writing. It's really, really good. And if you're on Twitter, they have really good Twitter um, sprints and stuff. Uh, I'm not on Twitter anymore, but when I was, uh, in fact, uh, NaNoWriMo was why I got on Twitter. Um, so yeah, it was, it was really fun. So our next set of five entries, or our last set, really, 26 through 30, is Emilos Mentis. Mentor, comma, Jahard Vaughn, M.E.O., comma, Jacques, and Emirat Moise, or I'm sorry, Amiro Moise. And number 26, make sure I pronounced that correctly. I did practice before a break and I realized I just completely forgot the practice. <laughs> so, but we have Emilos, which is any carbohydrate which can be classified as starch, dextrin, cellulose, or natural gum, the remaining members of the carbohydrate group are classed as glucoses or sacroses. The general formula of an amylose is 
C6H10O5, and that's in parentheses and then an N. I don't remember chem my chemistry lessons. Um, I didn't really pay that much attention in high school, but I, so I can't remember what the N stands for. Maybe nitrogen? I have no idea. I'm not even, shouldn't even guess. Don't know. Number 27, Amentus. The name of various characters in ancient Greek or Macedonian history, especially kings of Macedonia. One, a son of Alcetus, reigned about 540 to 500 BC, and he was succeeded by his son Alexander I. Two, king of Macedonia, son of Philip and brother of Perdiccas II, reigned 393 to 369 BC, having gained the crown by the murder of Posnius. He was engaged in war with the Olynthians and assisted by the Spartans. He was father of Alexander, Pedacus, and famous Philip. Number three, Philip excluded the grandson of Amentus II from his succession, and he was put to death in the first year of the reign of Alexander the Great because of a plot against the life of Alexander. The fourth was a Macedonian officer in Alexander's army. Doesn't really say. And uh, number... 28, a mentor, comma, Jahard Vaughn, or Jahard Vaughn, a mentor. And th that is the pseudonym of Dagobert Vaughn Jahart, a German novelist and poet, born Lichnitz, Silesia, 18, I'm sorry, not 1811, oh, good grief, 1831, July 12th. He entered the army in 1849, took part in the campaigns of 1864 and 1870-1871 as a major, was severely wounded in the former and resigned in 1872, settled in Potsdam in 1874. His principal works are Peter's Quedem's Rhine Journey in 1877, an epic, Songs of a German Night Watchman in 1878, The New Romancero in 1880, and that's a set of poems. The Priest in 1881, that's uh, considered an epic. Then the novels, It Is it is You in 1882, A Problem, 1884, Praise of Woman, 1885, and Gerp Sutamin in 1887, which is a historical romance. Ooh. So any historical romance fans out there, there you go. Number 29 a Mio, comma Jacques, or Jacques Amio, a French author, so we have another author, born 1513 October 30th, died 1593 February 6th. He is famous for his translations from the Greek, which owing to their elegant style are considered classical literature. They are the Diogenes and Chalcleria of Helidorus, seven books of Diderus, Siculus, and Daphnis and Chloe of Longus, and Plutarch's Lives, which was used by Cornille as a source for his antique tragedies, and by Shakespeare in its English version by Sir Thomas North for some of his plays. And number 30, so the last entry of this week is Amiro Moyes, or Moyes Amiro. He was a French Calvinist theologian. So we had two authors, and now we have a theologian. He was born in Bourgil in the province of Anjou in 1596. He died in 1664. He was educated at Samor, where he was himself afterward a professor of divinity. In 1631, he attended the Synod of Clarendon and was commissioned the present to the 
to present to the king of remonstrances of his brethren against the infraction of the edicts of pacification. Although he was a Protestant, his amiable temper and courteous manners commanded the regard of the Catholics, and he was held in particular esteem by Cardinal Richelieu. He endeavored, sorry, that was kind of weird there, he endeavored to bring about a complete union between the various Protestant churches. This object he had in view in nearly all his writings, especially in a Latin tract. Um, I'm not sure what that says. Uh, it's in Latin. I'm not even going to attempt it. Uh, moreover, acting in concert with Riccolo, he aimed at a reconciliation between Protestants and the Roman Catholic Church. He publicly maintained on several occasions the doctrine of implicit obedience to the sovereign authority, which indeed had also been held by the great founders of the Reformation. Emerald was a finished scholar and wrote Latin and French with equal ease. His numerous writings include a treatise on religions against those who esteemed them to be indifferent, Christian morals, a treatise on dreams against the millerists, considerations on the laws of nature, regulating marriage. All right, so that was entry number 30. And uh, just a few things before we head out and before uh, we do the quote of the month for the last time for June. I uh, don't forget Camp NaNoWriMo is in four days, so July 1st. If you want to hear my Independence Day um, bonus podcast from last year, I believe it's also on YouTube. Um, just uh, go to theoaktreejourneys.com forward slash bonuses or just select bonuses. And it's the first bonus listed on there. Um, it's, got a, it's got the flat American flag. To end uh, next Sunday, July 3rd, is the Church Mill. So if you're in the um, area, Bluff City, Tennessee area, uh, head to Mountain View Church of Christ. Um, services start at uh, 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Classes at 10 a.m. Eastern Time. And then the meal is afterwards, which is a little after 12 p.m. Um, and my Teespring store. You know, if you're interested in uh, getting something to show that you like encyclopedias, uh, head over to my Teespring store. The link is in the description below. And uh, don't forget, uh, this week is the very last week you can purchase Love Gone Viral, a book of five eclectic romances um, that go to good causes. So just a few, few little reminders there. And uh, let's go ahead and end with Dr. Thomas Fuller's quote, which is the real difference between men is energy a strong will, a settled purpose, an invincible determination can accomplish almost anything. And in this lies the distinction between great men and little men. And with that quote, I bid you ha uh, have a blessed week and I bid you adieu.